It's a privilege to be able to address you again uh, for the last time, and the message this afternoon is entitled, Find Yourself and Pray. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you now with grateful hearts. We are very thankful to you for having such mercy on us. Father, 2,000 years ago, you saved us in the person of Jesus Christ, and since then, Jesus has been affording humanity the merit of his death, burial, and resurrection, offering resurrection power. And we've come to a point in our experiences where we see that, where we understand that, and to one degree or another, we've experienced it, new life in Jesus. And, And Father in heaven, we thank you that you're a personal God who wants a personal relationship with each one of us. You want to dwell with us. And in the Old Testament, you you called your people to make a sanctuary so that you could dwell amongst them. And then you came down into humanity through the, the flesh and blood of Jesus, and you dwelt with us. And you give us your Holy Spirit so you can commune with us and, and bring us closer to yourself. And, and so, Father in heaven, we know the day is coming soon when Jesus will return. And we want to be of that company who looks into the sky and say, lo, this is our God, we've waited for him. This is our Lord, he will save us. And yet we'll, we'll need to know you. We'll need to know that this is our God. This, this is the one we love and, and has saved us. So from now until then, God, please um, teach us to pray and teach us to, to, to commune with you, to communicate with you on a regular basis, so that when you come again, we will in fact know you, and we won't be of that class of people who you say to, I I never knew you. Uh, Bless me now, God, as I speak. Bless your word. Help your message to come home to your people's hearts. Uh, The Bible is so awesome. It's, it's, It's so beautiful, and it's here. It's right here at our fingertips, and we can just study it any time of day, We have access to the thoughts of God through the holy prophets of old, canonized in this collection of books that we call the Bible. Here it is. It's just almost too easy. And we thank you that the Bible is here. So speak to us through your word, not through me, not through the enticing words of man's wisdom, uh, but through your Holy Spirit. And we know that uh, your spirit is not just, you know, going to speak to us through the clouds and thunderbolts and earthquakes, but he speaks in the still small voice. So make us keen to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned last night, I served for four years in the United States Navy. And... When you serve in the United States Navy or in most Navy, navies of the world, uh, one of the things that you are required to do is go out to sea. Now, that's one of the things that the recruiters who speak to high school kids kind of downplay when they're recruiting them into military service. They talk about the fact that you do have to go out to sea, but they don't really tell you 
everything that you really would like to know before you join the Navy. They say, oh yeah, you know, within the course of your four-year naval career, yeah, you'll go out to sea, and yeah, it'll be all right. You get to go to Hawaii, and you get to travel to Australia, and you get to go to the Middle East, and oh man, you'll see Africa. It's just unbelievable. You get to travel the world. And they kind of make it sound like a holiday, like a vacation, you know, like you're gonna join the US Navy, and it's just like, it's gonna be like the Carnival Cruise Line. I mean, you're going to have friends in Australia, and you're going to have friends in Hawaii, and you're going to go to Kauai, and it's going to be amazing. And all these things are true, but you know and I know that there's a slant that you can put up on the truth to give people a false understanding. And this is, to a degree, what naval recruiters in the United States do to young men and young women. Young men and young women don't have the savvy, don't have the guile to understand that the recruiter is hired by the military to recruit. And so they're going to tell you not all of the gory details and all of the uncomfortable facts. They're going to tell you what they think you need to hear so that you will do what they want you to do, and that's join the Navy. They're evangelists for the United States Navy. And as Adventist evangelists uh, exaggerate, so do naval evangelists exaggerate. It's a common characteristic of evangelists to exaggerate. Mm, They're usually very positive people. And they dwell upon the affirmative and positive. When you get to the Navy, it dawns upon you that you're going to spend more time out to sea than the recruiter let on. And when you get to the ship and you converse with other seamen who've been on the ship for years, you learn really quickly that that recruiter did not give you the complete picture of what's in store for your life for the next four years. Most of the guys, when you get to the ship, the welcome is like this, oh, you just got here? And I can't even say the words that they would use to describe what your experience was going to be like for the next four years. Oh, you're hating it. Life is terrible. I can't wait to get out of here. Four more months and I am gone. Oh, it's not what you expected to have to deal with when you first got to the the first ship, your first station in the United States Navy. One of the things I noticed about the, the U.S. Navy's ships, the USS Kitty Hawk is the ship that I served on. One of the things that, that I noticed first about the USS Kitty Hawk is how dangerous it looked and how dark and ominous it appeared. I had seen U- U.S. carriers on movies, in movies, and I had seen them like on the news and you know, just going through the sea and they looked so grand and so beautiful and usually in their commercials on TV uh, that are used to recruit people to the military, there's usually a ship cruising across the sea and the sun is shining and it just looks so alive and bright, but when you see it up close and you see the R2-D2 high-powered you know, machine guns on the sides and you see you know, the missiles and the ships and it's all gray, it just, it just looks like... You, the first thought I got, this is going to sound kind of funny, one of the first thoughts that I, that I had in my head when I first looked upon the USS Kitty Hawk, it was just so silly, but it was just... It's what I thought. I looked at that ship and I thought, huh... That ship looks like it's built to kill people. Well, the first time it dawned on me. I'd gone to basic training. I'd been there for, for months and months and months being trained to, to, to do my respective profession in the Navy on the ship. And the first time I saw the ship, I looked at it and thought, oh, yeah, I think, I think that's made to kill people. Oh, you're just thinking about that now, right? You're just thinking about that now. 
You're getting onto the ship and then you're talking to the sailors and the sailors are telling you, oh, you're gonna go out to sea so much. So the recruiter says, you'll go out to sea twice in four years. But what they don't tell you is that twice is just two six-month periods of time. But besides those two six-month periods of time, you're constantly going in and out when you're off the coast of San Diego. So you do two Western Pacific deployments of six months each. Then you do one rim pack, which is around the rim of Hawaii, the middle of the Pacific. That's three months. And then constantly while your ship is in port in San Diego, you're going out to sea like every couple of months once every two months, three months. So I did some calculating when I got to the end of my naval career about how much time I was gonna be out to sea. And in a four year period, I was out to sea for over two years. With 5,000 angry, mad alcoholics who were not happy to be out on, on the ship, mostly divorces, divorced men. The divorce rate of military guys in the Navy, it was like 90% in 1990 when I was in the, the Navy. It's just extraordinary. And it's just not a happy place, right? A bunch of alcoholics, they're not happy to be out to sea. You're a young idealistic guy who watched a bunch of commercials and then you find yourself on this ship and you, you realize, whoa, this is a war vessel. I just, I'm just enlisted to go kill people. Is that what I was really thinking about? And oh, I don't just go out to sea for you know, two periods of time. I'll be out to sea for half of my life for the next four years. Now, I'm telling you all of this just to kind of set something up here. <laughs> it's, just, it's just this. And that was... When you go out to sea, back in those days, there was no internet, no kind of like phones that you could contact people on. I imagine that in the Navy now, people can just FaceTime their family and FaceTime their friends. It's probably a very different experience. But then, at that time, the only communication you could have with your loved ones, with your family, was through letters, was through old-fashioned snail mail letters. And on the ship, mail doesn't come all the time. It would only show up because planes have to bring mail to the ship out to sea. And oftentimes that trip from the country to where the ship is takes this, the plane going to multiple different countries, right? And so then it just takes weeks and weeks to get communication from your family and from your loved ones to you. And so it's an arduous process to communicate with those that you love. So you've got to write letters and they've got to write letters and you've got to write letters and they've got to write letters. And that's the only way you have to communicate with those who you love. And I remember how awesome you feel when you're out in the middle of the sea and you're lonely and you're working hard and you're working, by the way, you work seven days a week out to sea. There's no Sundays, there's no Sabbaths, there's no nothing. You work for seven days. And so if your ship is out to sea for three months, you work for seven days and your shift is 12 hours or 16 hours, one of the two. Or you might be on eight hour shifts where you work eight on, eight off, eight on, eight off, eight on, eight off. Try doing that for three months with a bunch of drunks, 5,000 men out to sea on a ship that's purpose is only to kill people. And you joined for idealistic purposes. <laughs> and to go to Hawaii and to make friends in Australia. So when you would hear from the 1MC, mail call, mail call, mail call, mail call, all your heart would just soar and you'd get so happy and you'd, you'd, you'd remember the good times and your family and your love and, and it was just awesome. And you'd get so excited, so excited because you, you were hoping that with this mail call, there was a letter from your mom or from your sister or from your best friend or from your wife or from your girlfriend or from somebody other than the people who were on this stinking, nasty ship. And to, to an extent, I, I just want to draw the parallel and I'll kind of let the cat out of the bag and kind of spoil the party a bit. That's like the scripture. That's like, 
like communication from heaven. You know, you're in this world and this world, it's sold to you in a certain way. You know, the lights, the glamour, the movies, the, the this, the that. But the reality of the world is not uh, all that the marketers would crack it up to be. It can become a very dark place, a very lonely place, a very dangerous place. And, and getting these communications from a better land where there's, where there's freedom and happiness and life isn't just gray and routined and you're not just exhausted and alone with people who don't care about you. You know, what people don't oftentimes tell you about military service is that divorce rates in the military are extremely higher than they are in the normal population. We would have every several months a person killing themselves on the USS Kitty Hawk. And this would not be broadcast in the news media or anywhere else because it's just not something that people really want to think about or really want to talk about. But I, I remember myself personally attending to a man who hung himself on the ship. I could tell you his name right now. I remember. I remember people who jumped off the ship. Now, how lonely and how depressed do you have to be to be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? On a, on a ship that, although it's uncomfortable, it's relatively comfortable because you have your needs met, you have a bed to sleep in, you have food, you have warmth. You're so lonely and you're so depressed and, and, you can't, and you're so confused in your mind and in your heart that the best option for you is to just, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, just jump off of the ship. Guys would do that. People would do that. And the ship gets very lonely sometimes, and the ship is a metaphor for this world. It gets very lonely sometimes. It can get really dark sometimes. But oh boy, what good news is it that there's messages that come from a better land? There's letters that come from God. And there's a letter called the Bible that has come from God to us. And holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And they testified the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the testimony of Christ, that there is a better world that you, you don't have to jump off the ship. You don't have to hang yourself in some depressed engineering space on this dark, cruel vessel that only exists to consume and to conquer. Oh, there's a better land. And there's a glorious land. And there's a land of light and love. And there's a God there. And there's a Savior there. And really, in a sense, there's a race there. It's the human race and the person of that Savior. And we have access to that land. And that land is our future. And that land is our hope. The whole six month period of time, when you're out to sea on a US Navy ship, all you do is think about the time when the ship comes home. That's all that you think about. I had a calendar in my bunk, and every single day, it was a calendar, a six month long calendar, and every single day for six months, I would cross off days. Every single month, every, I'm sorry, every single day, cross off the day, cross off the day. And oh boy, how good it feels when you get like nearer towards the end. Oh, it feels so good. You're tired of the food, you're tired of the showers. Every time you take a shower, there's JP5 jet fuel in it, it stinks, it's uncomfortable. You sleep in a rack like an ant in an, in an ant farm. Some people stink, some people are unkempt, but you're stuck in that. And you're thinking of like your apartment near the beach in San Diego with your girlfriend and the food that you want to eat and the enjoyments that you want to enjoy and the free access to family and relationships and fun and exercise and all the things you want and enjoy. And, and it's like day one, 179 days. Day two, 178 days. You know, day three, 177 days for six months. 
And when you get down to uh, 165 days, it's a good feeling. And it's like us waiting for the second coming of Jesus. I'm going to finish this story kind of at the end of of the sermon. Um, And I'll just, just tell one illustration built off of this experience that I had in the U.S. Navy. But for now, I I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. The message uh, this this morning is, once again, it's entitled, well, it might be this afternoon um, by now, but I'm not sure. The, The message today is entitled, Find Yourself and Pray. And we turn to Daniel chapter 9, And we begin in verse 1. So Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Daniel 9 and verse 1, the Bible says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Ha, interesting. So Daniel, he is a prophet. God has spoken through Daniel. He is a man who is what I would call illuminated. He is enlightened. He has a deep personal relationship with God. He prays regularly. God gives him visions and he he gives him revelations about the future. You would say that Daniel is is, is is an an exemplary person. He, He exemplifies commitment and faithfulness to God. We find him here in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, studying the book of Jeremiah. And he says, I found in the book of Jeremiah a prophecy of 70 years, and it concerned the destruction of Jerusalem and how long the city of Jerusalem would lay in desolation. This is what we're reading here. Now, there's a really cool uh, practical lesson that can be extracted from this passage of Scripture, and that is that Daniel the prophet and all other prophets can grow in their understanding. Now, had Daniel at this point in his ministry, in his life, in his experience with God, had he prophesied yet? Had he given visions of the future yet? Yes, he had. He had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. He had gotten the vision of Daniel chapter 7. He had seen what he saw in Daniel chapter 8, all prior to this point. He is a prophet in the truest sense. He's a prophet in the truest sense. But prophets can grow in their understanding. He did not understand the prophecy of the 70 years that is found in Jeremiah that he's referencing right here. He says, I found this prophecy as I was studying the book of Jeremiah. I was looking, I was searching, I was studying the scriptures, even though I'm a prophet. Even though I'm a prophet, I don't know it all. I don't understand everything. Even though God gives me visions, even though God gives me dreams, even though God gives me pictures 
and glimpses into the future that I'm gonna deliver to the world, that are gonna help the world, that are gonna guide the world, that are gonna be God's messages to the world. I still have to study the Bible because I don't know it all. I don't have it all figured out. So prophets can grow in their understanding and they can develop in their understanding and this is exemplified by what we've just read. Isn't that interesting? And this is, it's, I think it's interesting. It's really interesting. And there's some super important insights that we can glean from that fact. The Bible says that knowledge, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1 and 2, knowledge makes us proud. Interesting statement, isn't it? Human beings don't need to um, try to become proud when they get lots of knowledge. The Bible says knowledge makes you proud. So you take human nature, you add to it knowledge, and the outcome is pride. But the rest of the verse says, and love, but love edifies. And then the, the next verse, uh, verse three says, if any person thinks they know anything, they don't know anything as they yet ought to know it. Now this connects quite well to, to Daniel. He understood. He got it. If any man knows anything, he knows nothing as he yet ought to. I'm a prophet, I get revelations from God, but I still need to study the Bible. I still need to search the prophetic writings of Jeremiah. He didn't become so proud, he didn't become so arrogant because he got revelations from God that he couldn't learn from Jeremiah. Do you follow? So it doesn't matter how much you think you know. You don't know anything as you yet ought to know. It doesn't matter if God even gave you a revelation about the future from heaven. You still don't know all that there is to know and you still can grow in your knowledge and understanding. So never become satisfied with what you know and what you think you know. You follow what I'm saying? You can learn from me, I can learn from you, you can learn from you, you can learn from you, you can, Jeremiah can learn from Daniel, Daniel can learn from Jeremiah, you follow? And this is exemplified how Daniel's studying. And he, he has access to Jeremiah's writings and he's gonna make use of those writings. He's not gonna sit back and go, well, you know, I'm a prophet and God talks to me directly and I'm so advanced spiritually. You know, I don't need to go to Jeremiah. I mean, why do I need to go to Jeremiah? I've got revelations straight from God. I bet if Jeremiah had access to Jeremiah, contemporary prophetic writings, he would access them as well. Yeah? So this is a really important lesson. Never get satisfied with what you know. Never get satisfied, so satisfied in your experience with God that you don't make use of the scriptures and you don't make use of those around you who have knowledge of the scriptures. Does that make sense? So you, you come to a certain level of knowledge, a certain level of understanding, don't get satisfied there. Don't get satisfied there. Keep searching, keep seeking, because you can learn and you can grow more. If Daniel could, so can you. Does that make sense? Um, we, as human beings, we like to deify other human beings. We do, it's just natural, it's innate. We have just a natural tendency to deify other human beings. This happened to Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 13. And I think it was in Iconium. I'm not sure if it was in Iconium or one other place, but I know it's in Acts 13. They go to the city, they preach the gospel, God does miracles, and guess what happens? The pagans want to worship them and sacrifice to them because they think that these men are gods. What's happening there in Acts 13 is just a demonstration of what's natural to humanity. When God does something in a person, you tend to think that there's something exceptional and unique about that person on an innate level. 
You just kind of can't help it. You just suppose when a great preacher preaches a sermon or where a student of scripture like breaks down a text, your natural inclination is to look at that person and kind of set them on some kind of pedestal where you think that they're more than human, where they're more than just normal human flesh and blood. But they're just a fallen sinner, just like you. And when the Holy Spirit uses you, you've got to make sure that you don't stop realizing and understanding that you're still a fallen sinner too, weak and frail and blind by nature. You see what I'm saying? Now, if we can all remember this, then we'll be the kind of people who who are always looking and searching for more, wanting to learn more, wanting to know more, and never becoming satisfied in ourselves with what we know. Yeah? You know, Paul dealt with this in 1 Corinthians 3 a little bit. The people in Corinth, you know, some of them were rallying around the teachings of Paul, and some of them were rallying around the teachings of Apollos. And Paul addresses this, and he says, you know, you Corinthians, you say, some of you say, I'm of Apollos, and the others of you say, you know, I'm of Paul. And he says, don't you understand? This is carnal. You're you're making like superstars out of us. You're making superstars out of us, but we're nothing. Paul's nothing. Apollos is nothing. We're nothing. We're fallen sinners. We're frail, weak sinners who are blind by nature, just like you. Don't deify us. That's carnal. You're acting carnally. You're acting like the pagans who want, who want to worship people when God works through them. Don't do that. And when God uses you, don't think you're anything special. And when God uses someone else, don't think they're anything special. They're nothing. It's God that's everything. Worship God. He's the one who's working through those people. But those people are, are, are dead in trespasses and sins in their natural self. But God's not working through them. You see? So Daniel shows us an example of someone who has learned a lot, he knows a lot, he's got a profound connection with God, but he doesn't sit back and think that he's something that's like special in himself, and so therefore he shouldn't study more. You with me, guys? It's very hard to stay humble when God is blessing you, but Daniel does it. It's cool, man, he's searching by books, he finds in Jeremiah, the 70-year prophecy now, he is a very well-informed person. He's been studying uh, intensely in Babylon when he was a kid. Now he's an older guy. He's, he's been living a life of faithfulness for years. Um, he's so good at all the things that he does that, that, you know, there's an excellent spirit that's found in him. His enemies can never frame him when they try to frame him. Um, it would be uh, fair to reason, it'd be fair to assume that when Daniel is studying and he finds a 70-year prophecy found in the book of Jeremiah, that he can see where he is in the course of that prophecy. He can know, like, Jerusalem was destroyed here, and Jeremiah says it'll be 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Okay, this is where I am here. This is where I'm at in the, in the course of that prophecy. He could calculate to that end. He could figure that out, right? He could do that. So he's reading Jeremiah's prophecy, He's studying the Bible, even though he's a prophet, and he's found signs of prophecy. Oh, interesting. I hadn't seen this before. He, he, can, he can see when the prophecy begins. He can plot through the course of time, and he can say, oh, I'm right here. I'm right here. Oh, I'm, I'm right here. 70 years, and then God's going to restore Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. This is what he discovers. And now notice what, what his response is. Okay, notice this. Notice what his response is. We're reading together still. In Daniel chapter 9, check this out. Oh, glasses. Verse 3. 
So he finds the prophecy and he says, so I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, we might read a little bit of the prayer, but we might not. And he prays this just amazing prayer where he acknowledges that the Israelite nation is in the condition that it's in, not because of God, but because of them. He, he prays this prayer where he acknowledges that God has been faithful, but God's people have been unfaithful. God has been loyal, but God's people have been unloyal. And, and, and here they are in this terrible circumstance, and he says, it's our fault, it's our fault. To you belong righteousness. It's this prayer of acknowledgement. And then it's a prayer, as we're going to notice in a bit, a prayer where he's asking God to fulfill his word. I just want to make a very simple point here, and I hope that I can find the language to communicate it okay. Um, just say amen if you kind of get this point. I think it's really cool. So Daniel, through studying scripture, he finds more information from God through Jeremiah, this prophecy of the 70 years. He calculates you know, where he's at in the course of time, so he finds himself in the light of prophecy, and then what does he do in response to that? He prays. So there was something about Daniel finding himself in prophecy that compelled him or inspired him to pray. There was a motivating power behind finding himself in the prophecies that compelled him to pray. That's, a, that's an interesting point, isn't it? So when you see yourself in the light of what God has said, you're more inclined to pray. So the more you find yourself in God's word, the more inclined you're gonna to be to pray. And if this is true, which I think it, it is, it's a simple basic truth that can be deduced from the text, the opposite is also true. The less you find yourself in scripture and the less you find yourself in the prophecies, the less inclined you're gonna to be to pray. Because you get lost in the world. This is very powerful. So the message today, find yourself and pray. Find yourself and pray. Find yourself where? Find yourself in the light of the prophecies. And when you find yourself there, whoa, in the light of the prophecy, you'll see as God sees. You'll see as God wants you to see. And then when you do that, you're, whoa, your, your natural instinctual response is, I gotta pray. Now you'll notice that every single time a person encounters God in scripture, they kind of prostrate themselves. You ever notice that? It's kind of like the natural result. You see God, oh! It's just like this instinctual thing. I'm proposing to you today this, a similar effect is produced when you find yourself in the light of prophecy. Does that make sense? All right, so I want to just kind of, we're, we're two-thirds of the way done with this presentation. I want to now just read with you something that you may have never, you've read, all of you, I would say, have read the passage that we're going to go read together but you may have never made a connection between the passage we're gonna read and what we just considered in Daniel 9, one through three, okay? So this is really cool. Check this out, simple but super cool. Go to Jeremiah chapter 29. This is, this is one of the two times where Jeremiah mentions the 70 year prophecy, okay? One of the two times. So we're going to Jeremiah chapter what, everyone? 
29. So turn with me in your Bibles back to the book of Jeremiah, to the 29th chapter. Now, we're going to read two verses. Well, we're going to read four verses. And, and <laughs> the first verse is about the 70 years. And then the second, the third, and the fourth verse are verses that I would almost guarantee every single one of you has heard and most of you have memorized. But you may not have ever connected the first verse that we're going to read with the second, third, and fourth verses that we're going to read, okay? It kind of supports my premise. Check this out. We're in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10. Check this out. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. So God's speaking to Israel. After the 70 years are completed in Babylon or for Babylon, I'm going to bring you, I'm going to bring you back. I'm promising. I'm going to bring you back. In, in chapter 25, God mentions the 70-year time frame as well. So, so Daniel says, I understood through Jeremiah's prophecies that God was going to have us in Babylon in desolations for 70 years. Now check this out. This is what he must have read. This is what he must have read. Now we continue to read here. <laughs> look, at, look at verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I have towards you, declares the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will, notice this, ha, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart and I'll be found by you. Come on guys, I know it's been a long weekend. But, but that to me is just extraordinary. Daniel says, I was studying Jeremiah. Uh-huh, I found 70-year prophecy. Did you just read that prophecy? So put yourself back in time. You're in Mesopotamian plains, you know, there with Daniel, and you're kind of just looking from the closet at Daniel. And he's, he's got the scroll of Jeremiah, and he's reading the scroll of Jeremiah, right? A humble prophet who's seeking more knowledge and more understanding from God through going to another prophetic writing. And he's reading and he's reading and he's searching. <gasps> and he finds the 70 years. And as soon as he sees the 70-year prophecy, what, what does God say right after? I know the thoughts that I think towards you. You're my people. I love you. I care for you. I didn't send you into Babylonian captivity because I hate you. I did it because the nation got to a place where there was no remedy. There was nothing else I could do. So I had to dismantle the people and I had to judge the people. And, and it's not what was in my heart. I didn't want to have to judge you. I know the thoughts that I think towards you. They're thoughts of peace and not of evil. I'm your God. I love you. I made you. I brought you into existence. And I want to live with you forever. And I want you to be happy and healthy. But you kept, you kept running after the idols and you kept wanting to be like the surrounding nations. And so I had to, to be just, I had to be fair. I had to, to, to fulfill my word. And you reaped what you sowed. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, but they're thoughts of peace. They're not thoughts of evil. To give you a future and a hope. I wanna give you life and life more abundant. But the way you were living, the way you were functioning, you can never find life in that. That's mere existence. And so I sent you into Babylonian captivity. I sent you into the captivity. But I said in the last verse, I'm going to bring you back. And then you will, you'll call upon me. You'll, you'll call upon me. You will call upon me at the end of the 70 week, a year, sorry. You'll call upon me and I'll answer you. 
You'll pray to me and I'll listen to you. You'll seek me, you'll seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Well, what happens? Daniel reads it. He finds himself in the light of prophecy. And then right after he finds the 70 week prophecy, he sees this beautiful promise from God about how God feels about him. And then God says, Daniel, if you pray, if you pray, I'm gonna listen to you. If you pray, if you call upon me, I'm gonna hear you. And if you search for me, if you seek for me with all your heart, you'll find me. You'll find me. And Daniel, he reads this and he's like, oh, uh, yes. And then what does he do immediately? He goes and prays. So when he's reading Jeremiah 29, he reads it as if God is speaking directly to him as an individual. This is a message to the nation. But when one man in the nation, Daniel, hears it, he takes it as if it's coming directly from God himself. Have you ever heard of Desmond Doss? The Adventist war hero. Doss, oh, he's a personal hero of ours. We named our third son after Desmond Doss. We named our son after him. Because I would just give every single thing that I have, if my son Desmond became anything like Desmond Doss, and, but it's interesting, Desmond Doss was not a highly intelligent man. And I've, I've watched every documentary and every uh, interview you can, you can watch on YouTube and online with anyone who knew Desmond Doss. And they're all trying to be very polite, but everything they say about him was that he wasn't that intelligent. He was not intellectual, he was not philosophical, he was not deep and profound in his thinking. He was very, 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 very simple. This is a very simple man. And in the documentary, The Conscientious Objector about Desmond Doss's life, he, he has this, there's this one part in it where he, he, he tells the story of when he's a little boy. And he tells this really beautiful story of when he's a little boy and he says, hey, when I was a little boy, my mom had a placard on the wall and it had the 10 commandments. And beside the commandments, certain of the commandments, there were pictures. And in front of the commandment that said, thou shalt not murder, there was a picture of Cain standing over his brother Abel. And he had killed his brother. And he said, I looked at that picture. I just looked at that picture and it was terrible. Now he's not super smart. He's not like a super smart guy. He's not deeply intelligent. He's just a simple-minded country boy from the middle of the bush in Alabama. And he's just sitting there, this little skinny kid. And by the way, they don't just say he wasn't that smart. They say he was super skinny, like skinny and weak. And it's just ironic that this unintelligent, super weak guy became the greatest war hero in the history of the United States military, and he wouldn't carry a gun. And he stood there, and it's just crazy. He's standing there, and he's looking. He's looking at the picture of Cain who killed Abel. And he says, how could a brother ever do that to his brother? And he said, as I was looking at the Ten Commandments, I, I heard God saying to my heart, Desmond, if you love me, you'll never kill. He said, I'll never pick up a gun my whole life. So this is the beautiful thing. There's kind of a, you know, Desmond had that Daniel experience like, it's just the word of God to the world, to the human race. The 10 moral commandments come from God, not just to Israel, they come to God through Israel to all of the world. And they're, they're, they're God's laws of life, God's laws of love. And so Desmond, when he read that, he didn't just go, oh, this is just some general communication to the human race. He's standing there as one individual man looking up at the laws of God, seeing the grandeur and magnitude of what God has said and the, and the rightness and the, and, the, and the righteousness of it. And he says, God is talking to me. I can't murder. And what does that drive him to become? What does that drive him to accomplish? 
He saves dozens of men in the, in the fiercest battle, in the most bloody war in the history of human warfare. A skinny little Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath keeper who's not that smart and he won't carry a gun. And look how great he becomes. Look how awesome he becomes. You watch the documentaries about his life and this is one of the testimonies that you'll find. All of the soldiers who work with him, all of the soldiers who, who serve with him, they say, they say, Medal of Honors, they usually win the Medal of Honor because of what they did once, one act of bravery. He did for six months, he did for one year what they did once, once, because he believed that God was speaking directly to him. And he acted as if God was speaking directly to him. Now what does Daniel do? I'm reading Jeremiah, 70 years. God's talking to Israel as a corporate entity. He's not just speaking to Daniel, but when Daniel reads it, Daniel goes, whoa, God's talking to me. And what does he do? He goes and he prays. And then what happens? You read the prayer. What happens at the end of the prayer? The angel Gabriel comes. So guys, here's a really, really good lesson, and I won't explain it you know, perfectly, because I don't have the, the ability to communicate as much as I want, but this teaches us that when we find ourselves towards the end of a time prophecy, even though God has made that prophecy, that prediction, we still have a part to play in it. We still have a part to play in the fulfillment of the prophecy. Daniel thought that way, or else he, you know, he wouldn't have just gone and prayed. And in his prayer, prayed that God would accomplish what he said he would accomplish through the 70 years. We sometimes look at the Bible and we're like, oh yeah, we're at the end of time. Oh, the 1260 is up, the 2300 is up, and oh yeah, Jesus must come soon. Yeah, he's gonna be coming soon. And then we act as if we have no part in the fulfillment of God's word. When God makes the prophecies, he's not saying that he is, he's fixing like in a blueprint style what must happen. He's predicting what's just going to happen. And so along with God predicting what's gonna happen in the future, God is predicting that there's going to be a people at the end of those time frames that's gonna help him bring into fulfillment the things that he promised. Now when I say help him, the language is not perfect. No one helps God. You know what I'm saying. It just means that there will be people who respond to God appropriately so that God can use them to fulfill his purposes. That's kind of what I mean. So he finds himself, <gasps> he, he reacts in praying because he saw the Bible saying, you're gonna see this prophecy, you're gonna go and pray to me, and then I'm gonna hear you. And does God hear him? Oh boy, does God hear him. He sends Gabriel. Daniel's original concern is like the restoration of, of, of the Israelite nation. And then God gives him a 70 week prophecy that talks about the restoration of the human race through the Son of God. He, he exceeds his expectations, I would imagine. So he found himself and he, he prayed. We should find ourselves and we pray. And I just want to, just this whole Desmond Doss thing, I just didn't think about mentioning this, but Desmond, boy, uh, where he won his Medal of Honor, just, just a little side note, where he won his Medal of Honor was, was at the place that the soldiers termed Hacksaw Ridge. And they called it Hacksaw Ridge because they just considered the ridge to be a hacksaw. You walk up on the ridge, you get uh, turned into what happens to a person when they walk into a hacksaw. The Japanese are entrenched in this stronghold and you're not gonna get them out. It's just they're there. They're warriors. The Japanese are fierce warriors. They will die. They are not afraid of death. It's ingrained in their psyche and their culture. They're tough. They're gnarly. They're terrible warriors. You don't wanna have to face. They're entrenched deeply. And uh, military historians are in universal agreement. 
World War II was the deadliest war in the history of the human race, and with a few exceptions, most military historians of World War II say that that battle in Okinawa was the most violent battle in all of World War II. And I just think, boy, how astounding, how beautiful, how, how amazing, that one of our own, a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, goes into the fray saying, I'm not gonna kill anybody, but I'll save life, I'll save life, because Jesus, he saved life. And then he goes in there, and, and it's like he can't be killed. He runs into the fire, he runs into the bombs, he runs into the bullets, he runs into danger. He finds Japanese men, he tries to heal them too. He's a living epistle, he can't be stopped. He's the power of God, but what is he in himself? He's a skinny, weak little country boy who's not that smart, and God exalts him, and he raises him up because he just believed in what the word of God said. And it was similar to Daniel. He just believed in what the word of God said. And he, he staked everything on that. He staked everything. And then what happens? He finds himself in the light of prophecy. He prays and God comes through. And by the way, there's something I noticed in my study, and I haven't studied it enough to really get it out here in the sermon today, but I think it's really, really valuable. It's really good. Um, I think there's something here. You know, here's Daniel. He sees, he's at the end of the time prophecy. And he's like, okay, I gotta pray, I gotta pray. Um, Obviously, he believes that his prayers are going to be efficacious, or they're going to serve a purpose, or they're going to have utility in God's plan, or else, you know, you wouldn't pray. And uh, I think it's just powerful. I think, I think Daniel, a man who had habituated himself to praying, you know, truly was a believer in the power of prayer. And it's interesting because there's something I saw in Daniel 2 that I've not seen before, and that is this. Um, when you're in Daniel chapter 2, you can read at the end of the chapter, well, around the middle of the chapter, 20, verse 28, 27, 28, and 29, Daniel communicates to King Nebuchadnezzar the purpose of the dream that God gave him. And it says the purpose of the dream is, is God wants to show you what's going to happen at the end of time. But this is kind of crazy, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar has dreams that trouble him, and then he calls all of his wise men to interpret the dream for him, but none of them can do it. Now, Daniel is one of the wise men. Now, Daniel hears that the wise men are going to all get killed because King Nebuchadnezzar is upset because the wise men can't tell him his dream and give him the interpretation. And so Daniel's like, why is the king so hasty? Why does he want to kill us? And Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, he explains why the king wants to kill you. And, and then Daniel says, okay, let me go before the king. Let me go talk to him. And so Daniel goes and talks to him. And then after Daniel talks to the king, he goes and he prays that God would reveal to him what the king was dreaming and what the, the dream meant, right? So it's like, Daniel is in, in an impossible situation. He's in an impossible situation. He's in an impossible situation. He's going to get killed. And the, and the wise men of Babylon, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, there's nobody on earth who can do what the king is requesting. This is impossible. You're basically saying to us, we have to do for you the impossible or else you're going to kill us. This is a terrible situation to be. So Daniel finds himself in an impossible situation. And what's his response? What's his reaction? He goes before the king and he says, I think I can get the answer for you. And then he goes and what does he do? When he finds himself in an impossible situation, what does Daniel do? Daniel prays. So he found him, now it's interesting, I've, I've, I've termed this sermon, find yourself and pray. Find yourself in the light of prophecy and then pray. But also you could call this sermon, you know, when you find yourself in impossible circumstances, pray. So Daniel found himself in the light of prophecy, and what did he do? He prayed, and then he found himself in circumstances that were out of his control and that were impossible for him to deal with, but then what did he do? He prayed. So Daniel's constantly, he's finding himself in difficulty, and he prays. He finds himself in scripture, and he prays. 
Now, here's the crazy thought that just came to me that was new. Uh, I hope that you can, you can get this, pick this one up. Um, why would God, like, if, if God didn't want his people to participate with him in the fulfillment of his purposes, why would he then give a dream to Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember and didn't understand, right? That necessitated its interpretation and its understanding necessitated Daniel praying. Whoo, this is a powerful thought. Well, if the purpose of God was to tell Nebuchadnezzar what's gonna happen at the end of time, that's the purpose of the dream. That's the purpose of the vision. Well, why does he give the dream to the man then the man doesn't understand it, and then the man's gonna kill everyone, and everyone's gonna die unless Daniel does what? Come on, guys, this is theologically profound. This is powerful. God in Daniel 2 is teaching us that he delivered a prophecy to Nebuchadnezzar that could have ended the life of Daniel if Daniel wouldn't have prayed, which simply teaches us and helps us to understand that God wants us to participate with him through prayer in accomplishing his purposes. And Daniel would have learned that lesson. Daniel would have understood that. So when he sees himself in the 70 weeks prophecy, he never just sits back and goes, well, God does what God does. And if he says it, it's going to happen. No, no, he starts to pray that God will fulfill his purposes. And he participates with God in the fulfillment of his purposes through being a prayer warrior. I think that's heavy. I think that's powerful. Okay, so, man, this is just, the Bible's so cool, man. I just love it. I just absolutely love it. So I was telling you guys, uh, I almost want to review because I just want to make sure that you remember stuff from the sermon, but you've heard so many things in the week, you know, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a smorgasbord, you know, you eat so much, you, you've ingested so many spiritual concepts and ideas, I mean, you're not going to remember any of this in a week, it's probably the case, but trust me, it doesn't mean that it's not a value. I have a friend who says, you know, I don't remember what I ate a year ago for lunch, but I know that it got me to where I am today, Right? So you don't have to remember every, every sermon you hear. You don't have to remember every fact. Just always realize and understand that it, it spiritually, you know, kind of energizes you to get you on to where you need to be in the future. But um, this has been a very simple message. Very simple message. Okay? Um, we're out on a ship alone. But there's messages that come, messages of hope and, and life and light, and they can encourage us and inspire us to faithfulness and to hang on. And um, Daniel, we see, he finds uh, insight and knowledge from another prophet. This teaches us that we should always be humble. And no matter how much we know, we should still seek knowledge from others. Right? Like, you should always be reading good books. I'm reading a book right now by Frank Holbrook. It's called Symposium on Daniel. It's a response to the Desmond Ford theology heresy that arose in this country. And it's a fantastic exposition on the book of Daniel. It's heavy, it's dense, it's hard to read, but it takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy, but boy, as I read it, I'm just like, amen, amen, amen. You know, like we should be seeking. So I'm going to Frank Holbrook to learn more because I think that God can reveal stuff to Frank that he's not revealed to me. So I'm studying, I'm reading, right? And we should all do that. And I'm just a tradesman, I'm just a common tradesman. Are any common, people here just common tradesmen? Well, God gives you access to himself even if you're a common tradesman. If you're a common tradesman, you're not like, you know, barred off from the Holy Spirit of God. We're not living in the old covenant times where the Levitical priests are the only ones who have like direct access and you've got to go through them. This is the new covenant. This is the new covenant. Jesus sends his Holy Spirit. Who the, he that will do the will of God shall know the teaching. You, keep, you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father and he'll send you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides you into all truth. 
He's the comforter. He's the replacement. He's here. He's now. And he works through people. But he's access, we all have access to him. Um, so let's go and let's learn and let's study and let's, you know. Daniel did that. And he never got so proud that he thought, oh, I can never learn from anybody else. Um, that's, that was the first lesson. And then, you know, we went to Jeremiah and saw that Daniel, he, he related to scripture as if it was speaking directly to him. And then we, we talked a bit about how God wants us through prayer to work alongside of him in the fulfillment of his purposes. Um, there's, that, there's that wonderful quote from Ellen White. I'll just read this to you, wrap up with the story and we'll be done. This, this statement has, has pretty good application here. You may have heard this, this statement before. It is part of God's plan to grant us an answer to the prayer of faith, that which he would not bestow, did we not ask. So tell me, what would happen to Daniel had he not asked for the dream and its interpretation? He's dead. And then guess what? You don't have the book of Daniel, I don't have the book of Daniel, and we don't have access to those prophecies in the way that we now have access to them. You follow? So how important was it that Daniel prayed when he found himself in that difficult situation? Are you ever in difficult situations? Do you ever find yourself in impossible situations? I find myself in impossible situations sometimes, and I want to confess before you, I'm the wrong person to have chosen to preach at this prayer conference because I don't pray enough. I don't, I, don't, I don't pray like I should. Like, let's just all be honest. I don't pray close to as much as I should. Not even close. None of, I, I don't, not at all. And I would, I, would, I would venture to guess. Call me crazy, but none of you do either. None of you do either. Ellen White says, men of prayer are men of power. Our church lacks power. Let's just be very honest. It lacks power. Now, we can kind of dress it up as if we've got power that we don't have. We can pretend. You know, we can kind of do, go the neo-Pentecostal way and do, you know, smokes and lights and mirrors as a compensation mechanism to pretend that we have something that we don't have. We can do that. We can do that. But let's just be honest. We don't have power. Well, why don't we have power? Men of prayer are men of power. Men like Desmond Doss, who, who take God as its word, they have power. They go off to war, and they do miracles. And the rest of us just sit here, and we watch religion as if it's a movie, and we don't participate. You follow? But God wants our participation. He wants our entrance into the fray. She says, oh, I lost my place. It is a part of God's plan to grant us an answer to the prayer of faith, that which he would not bestow did we not ask. So Daniel's dead. If he doesn't pray, it's, it's done. So God sets up circumstances where his guy has to pray in order for his purpose to be accomplished. I'll never forget that. I want to study it more and get more familiar with that and, and kind of see where I sit in that, but it seems like, wow, that's, that's true. It really seems that that's true. Now, um, so, you're, you're on a Navy ship and you're really excited when the mail comes and there are certain people who write you and certain people who don't and it's, it's a real weird experience because before you go into the Navy, there's, there's people that you think really love you and really care for you and you think that you're real friends and then you go to the Navy, you know, and they're, they, you, poop, they're gone. It's like you've disappeared off the face of the earth and, and maybe to them, you know, they're just thinking, yeah, the Navy, he, you know, Matt's off in the Navy and but they're not realizing the circumstance that I'm in. But they're not realizing the situation that I'm in. And I can really use, you know, a, a letter. 
<laughs> I could really use just some communication. I don't care what it is, just some communication, just anything. Just tell me that you, you care that I'm alive. Just tell me that, that you're happy that I exist. That would be nice. And you have tons of friends. I'll die for you, bro. I'll die for you. We're bros for life. We're the, we're the boys, man. We're the boys. And then you go off to the Navy. Ah, they never hear from them. You hear from two or three people. Two or three people. It's usually faithful family members, certain individuals from my mom's church. And this is interesting. People from my mom's church, I didn't even know them. People from my mom's church who I didn't even know sending me letters. This ungrateful, selfish little kid who they prayed for their whole lives who totally disregarded them and disrespected them. They're sending me letters when all my bros act like I don't even exist anymore. You, know, these, you find out who loves you. They say that you always find out who loves you when you join the Navy. And usually it ends up being mom and your bill collectors. Those are the ones who love you. They're the ones who love you in the Navy. And uh, so using the ship as the metaphor, we're out to see communication comes to us. We get opportunity to send communication. This is like prayer. This is like study. This is communion with God. Now you come home eventually. The ship comes home and it's awesome, man. The ship coming home is awesome. It's just great. There's a military band. There's family members on the pier. There's everyone's wearing shirts and holding placards. John, we love you. John, we miss you. Welcome home, John. Welcome home, our boys. Our boys are home. You know, all these just great placards and the music is playing and you're just so excited because the journey has ended and you're now going to see your family and come back to your home country that you love. And uh, there's little babies that people are holding up, little fat, chubby little bubbas. They're holding them up because dad impregnated mom before dad went out to sea. And say mom was six months pregnant when dad went out to sea. And dad's been out to sea for six months. So little Bubba was born when dad was gone. And little Bubba's got a shirt saying, I love my daddy. He doesn't even know who his daddy is. But mama's holding up little Bubba. Little Bubba says, I love daddy. It's just awesome. And then here's you know, dad who just gets to run off the ship, run onto the pier and hold his wife and hold his little baby that he's never seen before. Oh, such a good time, such a beautiful time. And obviously there's the metaphor of the second coming. Now imagine a man who goes to sea and he never writes his wife any letters. Well, when he returns, when the ship comes home, all he knows is who he imagines his wife to be. But they may have grown in such distinct and different ways that when he arrives home, he doesn't even know who she is. And imagine a wife who was never writing her husband letters. A brother who never wrote his brother letters. A mother who never wrote her son letters and never received letters from her son. It doesn't matter how much you feel for who that person used to be. You don't know that person for who they are when you return back home. And you're strangers. You're effectively strangers. Now when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a lot of people who have a great you know, picture of God in their head and they have a lot of affection for who they think he was, but they don't even know him because they haven't maintain communication. They don't have an active, constant relationship with God. And it's like the wife and he, her husband gets home and who are you? And I don't know, you look like a person I used to know, but you're not that person. Because you grow, you change. Life is dynamic. And this is the same. This is the same with, with us. And so guys, you find yourself in difficulty, pray. You find yourself at odds with the government like Daniel, pray. Find yourself like Daniel did in scripture, pray and maintain an active relationship with Jesus. And, and look, I don't have the heart, I don't have the love, I don't have the concern 
uh, just being very frank with you, to make the appeal like I should make an appeal. Like, I just don't. I, I'm, I'm, I just don't. I don't have the energy. I, I just don't have the energy. I'm just being very frank with you. Uh, when I preach sermons, I don't perform for anyone. Like, this is me. I'm talking to you. I'm really talking to you. And I find myself sometimes at a loss when I'm feeling like I should appeal to people, even though the whole sermon is an appeal from God to you. But I sometimes lack the energy and really just frankly the love and the concern. But, but, but I think God would have me ask you. He would have me say to you, will you please, will you please stop finding yourself in Hollywood? Like stop finding yourself in superficial concerns of this world. Stop finding yourself in your investment portfolio. Stop finding yourself in the pleasures and luxuries of modern Australian society. Stop finding yourself in all of these things of this earth and start finding yourself in scripture. Will you please find yourself in the word of God? Find yourself in my word and find me in my word and see through the great prophecies that the judgment of God has come. And see Jesus there and see him as your advocate, as your priest, as your intercessor, making relevant what he did for you 2,000 years ago. Will you please do that and then will you pray? Find me and pray. Find yourself in my word and pray. Would you please? This is the appeal. You don't pray, guys. Not like you should. You know it. Like, I know it. It's like we all know it. We just live in these worlds of like pretense and like, yeah, praise the Lord. God bless you. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> and every single one of us knows that we are not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not as a people. Not as a people. We're not. We're not. It just, it just astounds me. I just don't know how a group of good, decent people can do what our church does. It just astounds me. And I know that you can say I'm cynical. You can say I shouldn't speak this way. But oh boy, it just, I just don't understand it. It's as if there's no God in heaven. It's as if there's no God watching us, for real. You know, the, 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 this is how I'd assess the Christian world. Read the Bible, see what happens, know that that's not our experience, so have one of two choices. Confess that we are miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked, or cover up what we don't have with phony degrees, with worship experiences, and all kinds of nonsense to hide from ourselves the reality that we need to find ourselves in God's word and start to pray. I can admit it, I can confess it, can you? So God's appeal is uh, for us to, to find ourselves and pray. My family has just recently found itself in a real impossible situation. And um, don't worry, I'm not going to say too much, sweetie. <laughs> um, I can tell you that as a father, I have not been in an impossible situation until now. And we have just found our family in a situation where it's like, it's impossible. Like we have been, we have seen Satan work in, in, we've seen Satan's hand in, in our family where it's just, oh, we're stuck. We're just stuck. And so the message from God to us is we find ourselves in this and we just have to pray because we have nothing else. We have nothing else. So you're going to make it? She said to me, I can't sing a special music because I'm too emotional. <laughs> um. As a busy mom of three little boys, I tell you what, it's the hardest thing to find special time to pray. I pray all day long. I pray with the kids. I pray in worship. I just feel like I am connected with heaven. But I miss, I miss that special time with Jesus. 
because he's everything that I need. And until something happens in your life that you cannot see through, that, that you, you, can't, you can't actually go on in the same way that you were before, um, then every single thing that you thought was keeping you from that special time of prayer suddenly is done. Um, so that's what's happened in my life recently, super recently. Um, and you know what? My God is bigger than anything. And so um, I'm just going to focus on Jesus and the letter that he's given me in his word and, um, and all that he can do no matter what. And he will save my family. He will. Because he's the lover of my soul and he's the lover of your soul. And he deserves your time. And if I start crying, please sing along with me because I'm going to need it. <laughs>
So if there's anyone here who'd like to recommit their lives to Jesus Christ and to do it in a way that's coming with an addendum. So, so it's not just a Jesus, I accept you for what you've done. I accept the good news of salvation. Not the good advice, the good news. I don't just accept that good news that you, you saved me 2,000 years ago and in you I am complete. You're saying that, yes, but you're also saying, and Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find myself regularly in your word and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a person of prayer. It will take discipline. It will be uncomfortable. Committing Jesus through your strength and through your grace to become a, a prayerful Christ follower. And so I'll turn off the TV, I'll decrease my time online, and I'm gonna become a prayer warrior. I want my kids to be saved. you want yours to be saved. So, we have failed. We have failed to be people of prayer and communion with God, spiritual people. And we don't mean to be, it just is instinctual, you know, it's just, we're just carnal, sold under sin. And who will deliver us from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But God doesn't compel the will, and we can allow our souls to starve of oxygen and not choose to be connected and choose to follow after and choose to see our God have a meaningful relationship with him, one where we express honestly and listen intently. Um, that's all about prayer and devotion. And so if you want to be willing before God and before your fellow men and women to say, Lord Jesus, I, I understand I have failed. I failed my children. I failed my husband. I failed my wife. And primarily it's because I've not been a person of prayer. And I've neglected. The book of Hebrews says you don't have to reject Jesus. All you have to do is neglect him. And you'll be kind of drifted away. If you'd like to say that to Jesus today, Lord Jesus, I recommit my life to you. And I repent of my failings, of being a person of power, a person of prayer. And I want to be, I want to be a Daniel. You know, Daniel, he... He felt like praying was more important than living. Could anyone in here say, say, say that? Well, every single time you eat and haven't prayed, you're saying eating is more important than praying. Every time you go to work and haven't prayed, you're saying work is more important than praying. Every time you go to church and haven't prayed, you're saying going and associating with other believers is more important than praying. Now, all of these things are important. They're very important but not more important than praying. And God is calling us to be Daniels. And he gives us Daniel as an example. And thank God for this guy. Don't you love him? 
He really is just an example of Jesus. And uh, so if you'd like to say to God, I recommit today and I'm going to be a person of prayer. Through your grace, through your strength, I submit, I surrender, I respond. I have the power to choose because Jesus has given me the power to choose. But he doesn't force my choice, but I'm going to choose. If you'd like to say that to God, then I invite you to come forward and walk, walk forward and stand up here. And I guess if everyone's going to come forward, then I guess you can only walk so far. But We come up publicly, not because it's the thing to do at a prayer conference, or it's the tradition, or it's the ritual. We do it because Jesus, whenever he called people on earth, he called them publicly. And he said, if, you, if, you, if you're ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, of that person I'll be ashamed when I stand before my Father and the angels in heaven. And so we call people publicly, we preach publicly because Jesus called people publicly. And so praise God for, for those of you who've come. And I know that when you're in a crowd and you know, the Holy Spirit speaks through his word. You know, you just kind of, the herd instinct kicks in and, you know, you've kind of got to go forward because you don't want to be the unspiritual person who didn't come forward. But that some people may feel that way, but may we all, to some degree, to some extent, be responding today, not to Matt Para, the North New South Wales Conference, or the prayer conference experience, or any of that stuff, but may we all see through the veil of the flesh to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who chooses the foolish things of the world. And he takes the things that are nothing and he brings to nothing the things that are. And uh, Father in heaven, you, you see that we've stood up out of our chairs and we've used the legs that you've given us to walk forward. Because we believe that even though the Ethiopian cannot change the color of their skin and the leper cannot change his spots and those who are evil can't change what they are by nature and we are determined and bent towards sin, we get that. But we believe that Jesus is the second Adam and that he's humanity 2.0 and he's restored our ability to choose and he's, he's restored our will. Yet at the same time, because you're a gentleman, God, you don't compel it. And you honor our choice and just say, do you want to repent or do you not? It was all done in my son. You're complete in him. Just like the promised land was sure to the Israelites, but you have to follow. And if you don't choose to follow, then you'll die in the wilderness. You say that to us and you give us the choice. And we thank you for respecting our humanity and our will and our choices. And we today choose to come forward and we're committing our lives to Jesus and to prayer and to communion with God to become people of prayer so that we can be people of power. No more pretenders, no more um, cover-uppers. We want to be real and authentic. And, and if that means, you know, we go to the cross and you know, live a, a life of obscurity in some small mission outpost, then so be it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And what would a man give in exchange for his soul? So God, we thank you for speaking and touching our hearts. And ah, we have so much to deal with that's bigger than us, God. 
Help us to see that and realize that and help us to pray. And like Daniel, when we find ourselves in impossible situations, may we pray. Send us home now, God, with your blessing, with a full assurance that as far as the east is from the west, that's as far as you've removed our sins from us. And although we can't change the past that we're sorry for, we can redeem the time in the future. Because the time is short and help us to see that we need to redeem it. When we go and we find ourselves alone in a circumstance that is not conducive to prayer and spirituality, help us to remember Jesus and people said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? In that terrible, wicked city, you raised your son, holy, harmless, and undefiled. Help us to remember him and never forget. Thank you, God, for hearing us and, and, and honoring this commitment. Hold us to it by sealing this decision with the Holy Spirit. May we be real, authentic, and people who commit your word to memory and hide your word in our heart and live not just by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and make us those people who follow the Lamb, not just when it's convenient or gives us freedom from difficulty, but wherever he goes. Because we love him. And we believe in him. Truly believe in him. And we believe in the Father who sent him. On our deathbeds, God, may we rejoice in Jesus and not fear death. May we not fear the things that are going to come upon the earth. Help us to believe that you're in control, not the Pope, not the presidents, not the prime ministers, not the bankers, you're in control, and we're your children. We love you, God, and we thank you. Send us home with your blessing, please, and keep everyone safe as they travel. Help our homes, heal our homes, God. Heal us. Help us to constantly abandon ourselves before you for the purpose of restoration. In Jesus' name, we pray, and we thank you, Father. Amen. Amen.